Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well. How's, how's your week been? My week's been fine. Longest day of the year coming up. I used to love midsummer in Sweden. It's it's bigger than Christmas. Is it really? Yeah. What happens? There's a maypole and people dance around it pretending to be frogs. Then a lot of people eat a lot of herring and drink a lot of schnapps. What's your view on herring? I've never talked to you about herring. As a vegetarian, it's, oh, yeah. uh, it's not for me. Are you a fan? My father used to eat something called roll mops. Oh, yes. What are roll mops? It's sort of got the sound of something that uh, a, a cockney... Woody, it is a type. Of, it is a type of pickled herring fillet. I'll have some roll mops. He used to say. I wonder if it was a Belgian thing that they used to eat herring. Did you ever partake? I don't think it's a very child-friendly food, actually, because it's kind of pickled. It's, it is. I think it is pickled herring. I think you're right. I used to love a pickled onion as a child. We would always have a jar of them on the table, even with Sunday lunch. And I love a pickle, actually. I think pickles are underrated, gherkins. Don't you think we should need to bring them back into fashion, pickles? Have they gone out of fashion? Mm, I think they're not really very kind of fashionable, are they? Do you think that either you or I are the person to bring anything back into fashion? Mm. Who is the person who has the ear of the fashionable that we would be able to use to market this to the cognoscenti i don't think ed miliband or his podcast pal i don't think either of well, those that, names well, are thank, coming up. well thank you very much i've got a slogan don't be fickle eat your pickle i think you're only proving my point honestly pick up a pickle <laughs> <laughs> pickles need some more advertising what do you do you know there was um that there is a gap left in the market yes by um, former celebrity pickle maker Barry Norman. Well, he made his own pickles. Yes, Barry Norman's pickled onions, which had a clapper. Well, hang on, on pickled onions is different, though. I'm just saying, in the in the overall, I know, but I just want to dis- I don't really like pickled onions, if I'm honest. I really like pickles, gherkins, but I'm not really a great pickled onion. I'm not really a raw okay, onion oh, fan. Okay, 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 okay. I mean, okay. I don't want to have a just, go at the pickled onions, but just just saying that there is precedent for a public figure marketing their own pickles. And some years after Barry left us, they've been discontinued. So there's a gap, there's a literal gap on the supermarket shelf that could be filled with Ed's pickles. You're going to like it. Wasn't that Barry Norman's slogan? Uh, he would say, and why not? Uh, You're thinking why- of Paul Daniels, yeah. who would say, you'll yeah. like it, but not a lot. Yeah. And why not? 
I actually did a really nice event with Aisha Hazarika. I don't know whether I mentioned this to you uh, in Wimbledon. You didn't know. But um, it was just great doing it with a proper live audience. It was at Wimbledon Bookfest, and um, and it was really fun. It just reminds you how good it is having an audience. I am just looking forward to the return of you being able to crowd surf. Have you ever crowd surfed? No, have you? I attempted it once. It didn't go well for me. Did you attempt it? What happened? I was singing live rock band karaoke and during the middle eight i attempted to crowd surf and during and the what time I, the middle eight of the song you know the instrumental bit in the middle of the song the middle eight have you never heard the expression middle eight before middle eight yes it's the bit in the middle of a song where the singing stops and there's like a guitar solo or an instrumental break and i launched myself onto the crowd and then i could feel myself crowd surfing but then i later looked at a video that somebody had taken on their camera phone and it was just about three people carrying me around as if I'd taken some kind of funny turn and collapsed. I wasn't actually crowd surfing at all. Well, look, if you were one of those three people who carried Jeff, who <laughs> crowd surfed Jeff, we would love to hear from you about what the experience was like, what you remember about it. I mean, this could be this could be like the reunion on Radio 4 where we <laughs> where we could sort of all get people back together and say what, you know, what was it like? What what, what was the experience? You know, what was Did they develop back problems in Did they develop life? back problems? Did they have to go to their insurance company whiplash? You know, <laughs> I'm worried that I might be in some way liable. Do you think you don't really. Well, the statute of limitations has probably passed. I think at this it probably point. has. I think it would be an eccentric claim. Would be my um, would be my guess. Okay, so shall we talk about what we're talking about this week then? Yes, we are on the third episode of our podcast book tour, and this week we're turning to another big idea and asking if citizens' assemblies, the artist formerly known as Sortition, could help to repair our democracy. Do you like my pop reference there? Part three of Go Big it argues that democracy is in trouble due to a combination of declining trust in politics and a sense it isn't delivering for people, a demand that people rightly have for greater control over their lives, and our institutions struggling to deal with complex challenges like the climate crisis. And I argue that part of the answer is about how we reboot our representative institutions, for example, by introducing votes at 16 or devolving power. But I also think it demands giving people more of a voice than they get from voting in elections every few years. So in this episode, we're exploring how citizens' assemblies, which bring together randomly selected groups of the public to deliberate on an issue, can help to achieve that. And we're going to start by talking to citizens' assembly big brain expert Graham Smith about the huge uh, rise in interest in citizens' assemblies since we first discussed them back in 2018, cause and effect. And we'll be asking Graham what examples from places like France, Belgium and Poland show about the role they should play in making decisions. Then we're talking to Archon Fung, a world-leading thinker on democracy, and somebody I know well, a good friend of mine, about how citizens' assemblies fit into the bigger picture of increasing participation. And finally, we're catching up with the brilliant, excellent and friend of the pod, Becky Willis, who we spoke to last year about the UK's Climate Assembly. We'll be asking Becky how we can have a permanent role for citizens deliberating on the climate crisis. And since you've been working so hard, telling people about your book, uh, appearing on TV shows, giving all these interviews, we have arranged a little treat for our cheerful person slot this week. We're going to be having a conversation with cold water swimming expert, Mike Tipton. And it's really worth it. What's your reason to be cheerful? 
My Reason to Be Cheerful is a programme I've been working on. It goes out on Radio 2. I think it's Sunday night. It is about the year that the Beatles became bigger than the Beatles. And I've been working on this for a while. Do you want to guess at a year? What do you mean the Beatles became bigger than the Beatles? The the Beatles became the, the first band in history to become bigger than the Beatles. Uh, I don't know. What year? 1996. The Beatles got back together in the mid-90s and they, they released a new song made from an old John Lennon demo, the three surviving members, George, Paul and Ringo. And then there were some albums released which were full of outtakes and different versions and there was a documentary series and it became their biggest selling year to date. That is amazing. Yeah, and I've been working on this this for a while and... Um, I think it'll be really good. It's got. Uh, I talked to Jules Holland, who was one of the people who interviewed the Beatles for the documentary at the time. Giles Martin, uh, who is George Martin's son, who looks after their um, their legacy. Really, their recorded legacy, and then lots of people who enjoyed it at the time, like uh, comedian Nish Kumar, actor John Bradley. We talked to some younger fans about the future of uh, be- being a Beatles fan. Thanks for the sodding invite. I mean, like, I was crowd surfing to the Beatles in 1996. <laughs> What's your reason to be cheerful? Well, my reason to be cheerful is actually not a reason to be cheerful, but it is a reason to be cheerful. Um, it is that Lindsay Todd, who has worked for me for six whole years, is leaving because she's got a better offer. Uh, it's a reason to be cheerful for her. She it's gets a, a life massive back. reason to be cheerful for her. She is going to ghost a, you, though. She's going to change all her numbers, a, yeah, get a new email yeah. address. It's a reason to be glumping. But she, she's currently my chief of staff, but she's been absolutely brilliant. She came to me at not my highest moment after the 2015 general election. And she has been a source of wisdom, intelligence, humour, friendship, loyalty, late night phone calls and an all-round brilliant person. And she's going to work for Unison. Uh, She will do great things, but uh, we will miss her massively. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to get started and to reintroduce the idea of citizens' assemblies and deliberative democracy more uh, generally, we're going to talk to Professor of Politics at the University of Westminster and author of Can Democracy Safeguard the Future? Also chair of the new Knowledge Network on Climate Assemblies. It's Graham Smith. Hello. Hello. So as I said, it'd be good to just kind of re-familiarise ourselves with this idea for anybody who uh, hasn't heard us talking about it in the past or yet read, uh, read Ed's book. So just, just to recap for people who, who don't know, what are citizens' assemblies? And then, then maybe talk about how they fit into this wider idea of deliberative democracy. So citizens' assemblies are a really unusual political institution in that they bring together uh, randomly selected everyday people to uh, learn, to deliberate and come to decisions on issues of public concern. Typically, what happens? Do I get a letter through my letterbox saying we'd like you to join a citizens' assembly? Yeah, that's what happens. So what what we do is we send out um, several thousand invitations to, to a particular population um, asking them if they'd be interested to participate in an assembly. Um, and then those people who respond positively is a pool of a few hundred. What we do then is apply um, quotas, apply criteria, if you like. And the idea is that 
when you can imagine when you get those responses back, you, you typically get certain social groups respond more than others. Then we select from that group of willing volunteers. And what, what is it? That, do, I, do, I, do I go to a travel lodge for a weekend? I mean, what, what happens to me at that point? Pre-COVID, you may well have got... We, I think we do a bit better than a travel lodge, but it would, we would have brought people together in a hotel somewhere. Um, but when COVID hit, a, a lot of this activity has been happening online. So what we've seen is a shift from face-to-face meeting over a, long we- over a series of long weekends to actually doing this um, via Zoom and other technologies. And, and then in terms of the information I'm given and the experts we hear from before we start deliberating, how, how, how do I know that you don't have an agenda? How do I know that you're not trying to manipulate me into coming up with a, a, a set of proposals that you want me to? What you would typically do is have an advisory board made up of various different interests. And the best example I can give you is one I was involved in years ago, which was uh, the Citizens' Assembly on Brexit, which was just after the Brexit um, referendum. And we were asking people what kind of what would they like Brexit to look like? And there we made sure on our advisory group we had someone from UKIP right the way through from someone from the Scottish government. And we had to run past them both who we're going to ask to give evidence and also the nature of any information that we were going to provide to the citizens. And, and the big sell for it, I guess, is in a situation like we find ourselves in where people don't always feel like democracy is working for them. It's like jury service. You're trusting in the wisdom of randomly selected groups of your peers to come up with those proposals and ideas. That's absolutely right. And I think uh, the most important point about these bodies is their sheer diversity. You're bringing people from such different social backgrounds and social perspectives. They are just the most amazingly creative political spaces when you bring such diversity together. You think that it would be it would be you know a mess. But actually, you know, people come together who really don't believe that they they often say, well, why was I invited? Why would what, what possible contribution could I make? But actually, by the end of it, you know, they're working together with people who they would not normally uh, interact with and coming up with really, uh, you know, interesting, creative and thoughtful solutions. It, it seems to be, and some people have argued, including the OECD, that the, there's somewhat of a deliberative wave happening at the moment. Um, so are they on the rise, citizens' assemblies? Yeah, there's no question about that. And what's striking, I think, at the moment is the way in which um, in Europe we're seeing the rise of national assemblies, particularly around the climate crisis. And you you ask why, and I think I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, one is is that there's a range of challenges that politicians are simply finding extremely difficult to deal with, whether they're um, political or constitutional issues wicked policy issues like like the climate crisis and then we've also got pressure from social movements like extinction rebellion who are making arguments for citizens assemblies and then then finally i guess the other thing is that it's a bit of a fad you know there's a sort of you know that, that idea that you know this this local authority or this national government is doing it and what do what do governments do they often copy each other and that that's a good thing but it's also potentially a bad thing because, or, or potentially could be problematic if people are doing them just for the sake of doing them well let's talk about that a little bit uh, because I, I i guess you you don't want governments using them for show to say look we're listening to people then doing nothing really with those recommendations what 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 is the key to that and i know um you know you recently both here and in france there have been these climate assemblies and actually there are differences in the way those have, have gone over and been treated in the two different countries so what what, what is the the key to making sure that 
the 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 um, recommendations that are reached actually get acted upon yeah i think you've you've, you've really hit on the important question here jeff because i think over the years, we've kind of figured out how to do citizens' assemblies. The big question is, can we link these into the political process? Because if we can't, you know, people are going to see through it very quickly and they're going to get disillusioned. These things will, these things will, will, not, have, will not have the impact that we hope. Um, we certainly see with the French convention, you know, Macron made a big deal at the start where he said there will be no filter and these recommendations will move to legislation, they'll move to regulation or referendums. And of course, I think he didn't realise quite what he, let, what he was letting out of the bag at this point. And when the, ref, when, the, when the recommendations or the proposals came through, actually they were cherry-picked by politicians. And the, the current Climate and Resilience Bill that's going through the French Parliament is actually very selective in the, in the, in the proposals that it's, that it's picked up. Um, but, you know, it's not just about impact in the political process. There's been a significant impact in France on public discourse. So, you know, lots of newspapers have picked this up because it because of the high profile sort of commissioning by Macron. So how does that compare with this climate assembly here then? I've read about it in the media. It's not like it's had no coverage, but it doesn't seem to yet have steered public discourse in the same way. Yeah, I think I think the Climate Assembly in the UK is different on all sorts of ways. The UK one was commissioned by chairs of select committees. It wasn't in France. It was the, you know, the, the, the president of the Republic who, who stood on a podium and said, I declare this is going to happen. And then we, ha- we are seeing some really interesting practice in Poland. I'm not sure if you've come across this where um, mayors agree to run an assembly and they say that before it starts, they say that they will implement any proposal that has more than 80 percent support from within the assembly now that's you know that's that's not just saying we'll put it to a referendum it's saying we'll actually give power to the to the assembly itself you've touched on poland um i think i'm right in saying that ost belgian in belgium is is giving deliberative processes an even more powerful role just talk to us a little bit about that i was engaged with um a group of Belgium activists and some other sort of deliberative democracy specialists around the world to kind of design this um, this this uh, process for them. And what they did is they, they've got a, a permanent um, citizens council, which is randomly selected, and the members of it rotate over time. So it's not the same people. And that council decides itself on whether there should be an assembly and what on. The government and the parliament can make representations. They can say this is an issue we would like to con- see be considered. But it's actually up to this citizen council to, to decide, no, we, yes, we're going to have it on this or we're going to have it on that issue. And the parliament and um, government are required to respond within a certain amount of time to the recommendations that come out of the assembly. But the great thing about that is you've got this permanent council that consistently is, is, is providing oversight. So even though the assembly is finished there's still this permanent body that's saying, well, what have you done with the recommendations? And I think we need another assembly on this. So I think that's really exciting where most of the assemblies we've had to date have been commissioned by politicians under their terms. This is creating a a sort of independent process. Now, this gets to the heart of a very big question, which is should citizens' assemblies have a direct role in making decisions or just shape the wider public debate and 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 maybe in answering this you can say a little bit about what value you think they add if if your view is the latter well first of all i think they their value is bringing public wisdom into politics it's that it's that simple i can see the arguments both way about whether these bodies should be empowered 
And you're kind of like, well, if you're going to if you can convene these bodies, they're going to have more space to think about these issues than most politicians have who are making decisions on the on the on these issues. I think there are arguments for us to think very seriously about about giving the you know about empowering these spaces. But if we don't empower them, thinking carefully about how we ensure that politicians take those uh, take those recommendations seriously. Now that then sort of takes us to a wider and, and and slightly sort of wonky way of thinking about this, which I just want to ask you about, which is James Fishkin, who in a way is a sort of father godfather of deliberative democracy. He's talked about what he calls a trilemma, which is like a dilemma, but it's got three sort of corners to it and you can't have all three. And the trilemma is between political equality, deliberation and mass participation. And I I think what he's getting at is that you can see how deliberative democracy, the things we've been talking about, give you political equality and deliberation, but they don't give you mass participation. And you can see how representative democracy gives you political equality at least in theory and mass participation but it maybe it doesn't give you the kind of deliberation that you'd like to see and and i suppose therefore the critique of citizens assemblies is look it's all very well but it's just you know the number of people involved is much lower than the lowest turnout election you could possibly imagine so what legitimacy can they possibly have so i think i think that's a strong critique Ed. I do agree that one of the things we need to do is is actually around assemblies is to wrap around broader public dialogue and broader public engagement and that these could become a focus of broader political processes, whether that's in terms of inputting ideas into the, into an assembly or actually discussion and deliberation of the things that come out of them. I really want to get away, though, from the idea that it's that these things are should be seen in isolation. There are all, all sorts of other ways of doing deliberative politics within a democratic society. I just think this is a particularly interesting way of dealing with very strategic and very controversial issues. I don't want to say citizens' assemblies replace everything else. I certainly don't want to say that. Um, and, And they will always be something which only brings a smaller number of people together. But I also think we should explore other ways of doing deliberative politics as well. So don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. These things are really fascinating, really interesting ways of bringing a diverse body of citizens together. They have a role to play. They're not the answer to all of our problems, though. Graham, that is brilliant. Uh, Graham Smith, um, I won't do all of the things that you do uh, again. (laughs) But you also, we've discovered in this podcast, the editor, co-editor of a, a a journal called the Journal of Deliberative Democracy, yes? That's correct, yes. Which uh, I yeah. would strongly recommend. I, it was a fascinating... I, I was, when I was fin- finalising my book, I kind of disappeared down the rabbit hole of the Journal of Deliberative Democracy and I could have spent even many m- more hours reading your august journal. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, to give us some sense of the wider uh, potential importance of deliberative democracy, citizens' assemblies within our, our democracies. Uh, we're going to talk now to Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government at Harvard Kennedy School, Arkan Fung. Hello. Hello. Hi, how and are you? I'm ya? very excited to talk to you because uh, I, I believe you were at Harvard at the time Ed went over and, uh, and, and, and taught there. And Ed always talks about this as a great triumph. He was carried <laughs> aloft on the shoulders of his students... Um, Do I the, think that really? There was, there, was, there was weeping when he left. What are your memories of Ed's time at uh, Harvard, Arkon? 
Well, the Harvard undergraduates can be a tough bunch, but uh, Ed really won them over. He developed, I think the title of the course was What's Left. And yeah, that's um, right. it was it was a real hit. Uh, the <laughs> Harvard, as you may imagine, it, it has a pretty conservative intellectual tradition. And so that was a pretty edgy course offering. And I think uh, students responded to it very well. Archon, let, let's start by, I, I want to talk about this phrase you use, which is wide aperture, low deference democracy. And what, what that means, and then more broadly, the challenges uh, that representative democracy faces in countries like ours and, and yours in the States. So wide aperture, I don't know what the age uh, group of the, the listeners is, but the, for those who don't know, the aperture is the hole in a camera, a physical camera that the light comes through, which nobody uses anymore. So the term already is a little, a little quaint. But what I mean by that is that, you know, Jeff and Ed, for most of our political memories, uh, politics in the West, in the UK, in the United States, certainly, and also much of Europe, was almost fully occupied by what I think of as a narrow aperture consensus, beginning in the Thatcher-Reagan era. And um, uh, somebody reported that in 2002, Lady Thatcher was at a dinner party in, in Hampshire, and somebody asked her, Lady Thatcher, what is your greatest achievement? And she said, Tony Blair and New Labour is my greatest achievement because we forced our opponents to change their minds. And it's that thought that captures the narrow aperture. I think she did win the argument. And the argument that her argument basically dominated politics from her, her prime ministership up through, I think, the Obama administration. And so that's the narrow aperture. And now I believe we're living in a wide aperture kind of politics in which all kinds of ideas and proposals on the left and the right that would have been, that were summarily dismissed are now on the table. So imagine if you had walked into a meeting in the West Wing of the White House during the Obama administration with any number of proposals that are now commonly discussed from building a border wall on the south of the United States on the right to the universal basic income or the wealth tax or in the United States, the radical proposal of single payer universal health care you would have gotten laughed out of the room because the aperture was so narrow. They just would have said, you're crazy. Polite, serious people do not talk about those things. So please leave, right? And But now all kinds of people, uh, uh, both at the grassroots level, but also in the political establishment, are talking about those um, ideas. And that creates a lot of pressure on our political systems because they're not used to dealing with that wide range of ideas, and we don't have the political muscles to process that wide aperture. Um, the second part of the term, low deference, I think we're living in an era, and it's been building for a long time, this is way before Trump or Brexit, in which political leaders and institutions are held in fairly low regard, low deference. And um, in the current moment, a big part of the reason for that, I believe, is that uh, leaders and politicians of our generation, for the most part, created and defended the narrow aperture policies that now many people think were part and parcel of the many problems that we're experiencing. And so they uh, hold many politicians and parties in, in low regard because of that, I think. 
And and then so does then deliberation participation does that help with that problem because people have more faith in each other than they do in the political class then i think of participation and deliberation as connecting people to political leaders and political parties and so representative government is first and foremost a bridge between the people, the constituents, and their leaders. And I think of the crisis of representation now is that that, those mechanisms of representation that connect people to leaders, that bridge is collapsed. And we need to repair it if there's to be successful political leadership at all. Arkon, talk us through some of the forms that this kind of participation and deliberation can take. I do think that at the local level and at the kind of neighborhood level, if you like, practices of participation, participatory governance have been in place for a long time, especially for wealthier and middle class communities. And so you think about um, school governance. If, if a school head, at least at any, in any middle class community in the United States, if a school head is um, a total disaster, that's not going to be a very sustainable situation because parents and communities are engaged enough and empowered enough to do something about it. So those are kind of informal, familiar forms, but I think there are also kind of newer, more novel forms. And and, um, and I'm most drawn to partic- popular participation in at the constitutional level. I think new constitutions, the ones in the last decade or two, all have this amazing innovation of ordinary people Uh, participating in them. And you see that in Ireland, in Iceland, in the United States, in several states. You know, gerrymandering is a big deal here, the drawing of political districts. And so in states like Michigan and California, the maps are drawn basically by citizen assemblies. They call them citizens redistricting commissions. And of course, I, I know you have talked on this podcast about participatory budgeting. So that's also another form and how, Archon, should we think about the interaction with representative democracies? You've written, I think, that the, the biggest citizens' assembly is has a lower turnout than the lowest turnout um, election. By a lot. <laughs> By a lot. How do you think about this legitimacy question? In other words, if we get a citizens' assembly to offer a view on you know, how we approach the climate crisis or how we approach paying for what we call social care in this country. Does that convince other citizens? Well, people like me went through this process. They came to this conclusion. I'll buy that. Or does it, does it as it did in Ireland, simply just make the politicians braver to think, OK, well, we can have an abortion referendum. Uh, we can have a same-sex marriage referendum because actually this Citizens' Assembly has come out pretty strongly in, in favour of, you know, both of those initiatives. So, so how do you think about those legitimacy questions? Yeah, it doesn't, it's no guarantee, that's for sure, because we've seen Citizens' Assemblies come up with proposals that then go to referendum that then are rejected. So it's certainly no guarantee. But I think it's that kind of dynamic, is a Citizens' Assemblies aren't the be-all, end-all of... Uh, participatory or deliberative governance, but they're one component, I think, in a healthy system. 
And so in the United States, these citizen uh, redistricting commissions that I told you about, that I just mentioned, they were created by popular referendums. So there, the legitimacy that they enjoy comes only from this broader mass direct democratic process. So that kind of is one channel. Another channel is uh, the process that you suggested, is maybe a citizen re- uh, assembly comes up with a series of proposals, maybe a carbon tax or what on, on climate and then that goes to referendum as another component to connect the mass. And a third is maybe um, citizen assembly to legislator. Maybe, you know, if you had a standing citizen assembly that made proposals, perhaps it would be a gain for democracy if the elected representatives had to take those proposals seriously and deliberate uh, them. It's another channel. Should we have always had this approach to democracy? Is it a consequence of the crisis? Is it a consequence of the decline of deference that people want to be involved? What's powering this change, I guess? So are you, are you saying is it about fixing a system or is it about improving and building on a system? For most of my career, I thought it was about fixing and improving upon a system that was working okay, which is what we think of as representative government. <laughs> Maybe like you, I had taken a lot of the representative structure more or less for granted But sitting in the United States right now in 2021, I don't know that any of us can do that anymore. Um, And so I think the urgency of fixing democracy with participation and representation both is a really urgent task. And to, to Ed's question, I don't know what the ideal would have been all along. I mean, if representative government hadn't narrowed the aperture and had remained wide and able to consider lots of class questions and race questions uh, well and solve those problems, then I would be thinking much, much less about citizen assemblies and referenda and direct participation. I would think, well, representative government is addressing all of these problems and lots of voices and lots of perspectives are getting in. It's working just fine. But that didn't happen, and the, the, the aperture did really narrow for 40 years at least, right? And the result of that narrowness, is, as um, you've discussed a lot, I think is rising inequality and lots and lots of other problems. And so it wasn't working. So we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is Jeff as the... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm imagining it's the talk of Harvard I mean, for honestly, a podcast about democracy. That is an ironic twist. <laughs> I know. If we gave you sort of carte blanche to sort of design the kind of um, deliberative institutions, what what would you? Where would you begin? I think if I could wave the if if yeah. I could get Jeff to to wave yeah. the magic political wand, yeah, it would be. I think the proliferation of the normalization of citizen assemblies as a practice alongside local elections and parliamentary elections and the judiciary. I think that that would be what I don't think citizen assemblies are the be all end all. But I think if they were widespread enough and common enough so that most or many people had a direct experience of being on one, as in the United States, many people have the direct experience of being on a jury have had in some time in their life. And it was a normal part of politics so that politicians and opinion 
leaders and, and pundits had a way of discussing it and processing it. And then the proliferation would enable us to better answer, Ed, your question of when is that device appropriate? When is it inappropriate? What are its weaknesses? I'm sure it has, if it were to become very common, I'm sure people would try to game it and take it over just like they do everything else. And we just understand a lot more about how it could contribute as a kind of institution and what its limitations are. Well, look, Archon, it's been absolutely brilliant to talk to you. You're somebody who's thought so deeply, as, as it's been so obvious from this interview, about these issues. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Ed. Thanks, Jeff. So we've heard from Graham and Archon, and, and now I'm delighted to say that we have well-established friend of the pod, Becky Willis, back. She was the expert lead on last year's Climate Assembly UK, and she's leader of the new Climate Citizens Project, at Lancaster University. Becky, welcome back. Thank you. Um, Let me just start by asking you, um, we spoke to you just over a year ago about the UK Climate Assembly. Tell us about your reflection one year on about the Assembly, its recommendations and the response to it. Yeah, so when we spoke before, we hadn't released the the recommendations yet, had we? But I think what what I found so heartening about the recommendations was that it just sort of gave us a you know a sensible and a human account of how we should be responding to climate change. It showed to definitely show to politicians that there's a consistency and a breadth of support for climate action. What would you pick out as the key things that the Assembly concluded and and, and, and how would you gauge the reaction of government to it? So in terms of what I would pick out, I think the overall principles. So the Assembly, the theme that ran through just about every single discussion at the Assembly was fairness. And fairness was defined in, 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 in lots of different ways. It was about making sure that no one lost out overall. It was also about sort of geographical fairness, making sure it worked for different parts of the country. I mean, I don't want to paint a sort of straightforwardly rosy picture. I think the Assembly set out really clearly what the flashpoints for the next few years of climate policy will be. And there are some issues where people very clearly have different views and there are things that worry people. Choices around um, eating less meat and dairy and about flying and about um, capturing and storing carbon underground. These were flashpoints. These were things that people sort of argued over and debated a lot and, um, you know, needed really careful facilitation. And so that shows me that that we we need to be super careful about how we design policy in those spaces if we don't want a backlash. Tell us about your new Climate Citizens Project. Why do you think tackling the climate crisis is going to require more of these kinds of deliberative processes? I think that's the, I think that's the aim of your project, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. We're looking at how you can really embed deliberation into the business of politics and into policymaking. So, you know, there are two things we're pretty certain about. Um, the first is that there's genuine and deep concern about climate change and support for action to tackle the climate crisis. But the second thing 
there is conditionality attached to that support. We know that net zero will change people's lives. And so we need to see it as a sort of negotiation between citizens and the state. And so we're going to look at what actual form that deliberation could take on an, on an ongoing basis. And, and what, what kind of um, uh, ideas are you considering? For, should we have a permanent citizens' assembly? Uh, on climate how would you sort of embed it more in the way decision making is made yeah i mean you could either have a permanent assembly um a lot of people have suggested that the house of lords could actually be replaced by a a, a second chamber which is made up of citizens selected by uh, by lottery um that's an an idea also, you could just look at ways to have those more detailed policy discussions around particular issues like, you know, how we decarbonise um, home heating, how we move beyond gas boilers. Um, and you could use uh, deliberation like, you know, deliberative workshops or citizens' juries to get really fine-grained input into those decisions. Another area that we're really interested in is how this could work at a local level um, because people really know and understand the local area so how could you use deliberation to co-design zero carbon economic futures we have this thing on the podcast uh, called the jeffocracy um, with with what you have learned uh, through the experience of of having uh, been part of the uk climate assembly and uh, through now your experience with the climate citizens project what would you implement on day one? There, there is a bit of a contradiction with the Jeffocracy, isn't there? Been, yeah, it has yeah. been mentioned, yes. It's, it's, if you're making decisions, there's not a lot left for the people to do. But on behalf of the citizens of the Jeffocracy, I would like to humbly propose... Um, Firstly, I'm I'm really serious about replacing the House of Lords with a with a second chamber of citizens um, chosen by lottery and really skilling them up. So you know, giving them resources, uh, staff, uh, nice offices overlooking the Thames, the whole thing, um, and they would um, be supported to propose laws and also to scrutinise what the Jeffocracy gets up to. So I think, uh, you know, I'd love to see a big bang like that. And, and I mean, how about opening up budget discussions to deliberation so that, you know, you pay your taxes, you get to decide how to spend them as well. You could have... And they don't abolish the presidential plane, I think, at a stroke, Jeff. I'm afraid. As, as long as my statue <laughs> yeah. budget was ring-fenced. <laughs> Great. Well, um, it's so good to have you back on. Uh, I'm going to go away and start um, thinking about how I'll make the case for the presidential plane. Becky Willis, thank you so much. Thank you. So what did you think? I don't have your concerns about legitimacy. Do you mean of the Jeffocracy or the... <laughs> of, well, assemblies? you know, definitely not of the Jeffocracy. Um, but in, in terms of whether people would accept proposals put forward by citizens' assemblies as legitimate, because the thing that came up the last time, which completely convinced me, was the jury argument. We, we trust our peers to make decisions. I mean, what's more important than you know say whether somebody's taken a life or not and the consequence of that and we trust our peers for that so as as long as it didn't feel like they were being manipulated to think one way or the other and there was faith in the independence of assemblies then why why is there a pro problem with legitimacy it doesn't matter that it's um you know a small number of people 
are you saying as a decision-making body? Yes, because I'm, I'm saying if, if you trust a jury to make a decision as important as that with, uh, you know, as p- potentially important consequences to, to somebody's life, then I, th- I think providing you set up the institution in, in the right way, the pe- people would have faith in these proposals. And the more the more of these assemblies that were conducted, the more people would hear about them, um, you know, not from the media or from politicians, but from people who'd taken part, and the more faith there would be in it. You see, I think where I am is it's a good compliment to representative democracy, a really important compliment to representative democracy. And I'm not just saying that because I'm an elected person. I think it's more my worry about legitimacy, which is that which is that if you're an elect if you're somebody who's been elected for all the flaws, you've got that badge of legitimacy. I mean it's kind of depends it's sort of hard to talk about this in the abstract, isn't it? Because it's like it depends what the decision is. Yeah, I mean, and also so know, what hap- what happens I mean, with the proposals. We talked about all these different ways in which the proposals can be enacted on, either by referenda or by um definitely being considered by a parliament or by yeah, being actual policies. It reminded me it, it, there has to be a clear link between what a uh, an assembly um, comes up with and then what happens next. It made me think of when I used to work on the radio. We used to um, ask the listeners for their favourite 100 songs every year and then they'd just weed out all the ones that weren't already on the playlist and just do a countdown of the ones they were going to play anyway. And you don't want to treat deliberative democracy as, as, as being able to weed out the proposals you don't like but you see you see i think you see we have something called the climate change committee which is a group of experts who to who, who advise the government on climate change now in the end we haven't said okay the experts will decide what our policy should be the government still gets to decide but there is a sort of pressure formed on the expert or, or on the government to sort of accept the experts' advice, how much we should cut emissions by and all that. And I don't, at a, at a big level, no government has yet refused the, the, the recommendations of the CCC. And I think there is a sort of, I propose in the book, a permanent citizens' assembly on climate. And I think you could imagine doing something like that. And I definitely, you know, I, I'm a big fan. I'm just, I, I suppose... I think what strikes me, I, I think you're absolutely right about this jury, sir, the, the the criminal juries thing, because it, the more an Archon and Becky um, and Graham in different ways were all saying this, the more it gets sort of woven into our way of doing things. I think the more people will get to understand them, and also it'll further our own understanding. I think. I think the other thing that's really interesting about this is maybe this is a sort of lesson for the podcast. Maybe it's sort of obvious, really. I do think that coming back to these issues, you sort of, you kind of learn more each time, don't you? You can't expect us to tie up every last detail of it in one podcast, but two, that gives us plenty of time. Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Ed. Jeff. I have a treat for you for our cheerful person slot this week. You've been working... I know you do. ...very hard. You've, you've, you've been out busy uh, talking about your book. So as a, You've as a, invited Barack Obama. Next best thing. I know. It's Mike Tipton. It's Mike Tipton. Uh, we should say hello to Mike. Mike is Professor of Human and Applied Physiology at the Extreme Environments Laboratory at the University of Portsmouth, which means what this man doesn't know about cold water swimming, Ed, isn't worth knowing. I am so psyched about this. Mike, can you start by telling us a bit about your own interest in cold water swimming and, and the Ironmans that you compete in? Firstly, um, thank you very much for inviting me on and also mentioning me in the same breath as Barack Obama, which is the biggest compliment I've ever received. Um, Doesn't that happen ever, everywhere you go? <laughs> it does, I seldom honestly. get confused with Barack Obama, I have to say. Yeah. The, um, yeah. So uh, I started swimming when I was very young. Um, my mother and father got me into it, although I'm completely the wrong shape to do it, but it was a good sport to be in. I was swimming indoors and playing rugby, and then I took up triathlon when I returned retired from rugby at 43 and started off doing very short triathlons and then there was this sort of mission creep that ended up with a with Ironman but um, my my most of my research and our research uh, at Portsmouth over the years has been on the dangers associated with cold water immersion it's only relatively recently when there's been this big upswing in the number of people doing open water swimming that the question has arisen you know what's going on so what is going on Mike well, I mean, I'm talking to somebody who does it. So, I mean, tell me if what I say is what you experience. Firstly, people say they feel um, awakened, alerted, uh, you know, when they go and do it and it sets them up for the day. Some claim that um, they've you know, not had any infections since the day they started open water swimming. And others say various conditions they've had, both physical and mental, have improved significantly by doing open water swimming. It definitely makes a huge difference to my mood. I think there's something very uh, calming about it. And I think there is something, um, I think particularly when it's cold, there is something very invigorating. But you tell us about the science of it. 
Well, um, interestingly, the actual science backing up the beneficial effects is relatively weak, but there are several hypotheses out there, of, number one of which is we know that when you first go in, you cool the skin, that sudden cooling of the skin initially produces gasping hyperventilation, which for some people sadly ends up in drowning. But, but otherwise, it's releasing quite a lot of stress hormones. So you're getting an increase in you know, adrenaline, for example, goes up. And that, we think, is the basis of what makes you feel awake. And it's, it's a fight or flight response. So it's invigorating, it's preparing you for action. Now, now I've, I do have a sort of personal question about this, which is that when I did the swimming in the coldest water last year, I've got one of these, um, you know, watches that tells you your heart rate. And it was saying that I was over 200 beats per minute, which is not my normal heart rate. It's like treble my normal heart rate. And I talked to this sort of friend of mine who, who's, who's a medic, and he said, look, and I was doing it for sort of 20 minutes, which was eight minutes more than Alistair Campbell. Uh, hashtag just saying and he said to me listen you should not when it's four degrees be using it for exercise what's your kind of hunch about what's going on here but over 200 sounds too much alistair campbell told me it couldn't be over 200 and the watch must be wrong but alistair campbell knows bugger all about these things so i don't think he's a very good guide I was unaware that he'd done a medical degree, but there we are. <laughs> I was unaware too, actually. Um, no, no, that's uh, two aspects. So number one, it's probably wrong because, you know, it doesn't right. work that well in water. And you can get a general estimation of your maximum heart rate as about 210 beats minus your age. So I'm assuming you're more than 10. You don't think it can be right? No. Well, because otherwise I'd be dead. No, no, no. I mean, it just, it, it, it's unlikely to go up to 200 beats per minute in somebody who's older than 20, 25 years old. Talk to us about habituation techniques then, because I did try the cold showers method, which did work a bit. I mean, this is when, when there was lockdown going on and there was a sort of pause. But I mean, basically, you shouldn't just plunge into four degree water from not having been in cold water, because that really is dangerous. What, but but as, long, as long as you habituate yourself then you can sort of habituate yourself into it. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, you do all the things that you would do if you were about to undertake a stressful exercise regime. You know, get a check-up with your GP, make sure you're fit enough to do it, do it with others, do it in a controlled fashion, do it incrementally. You know, all, all the things that are the sensible things to do. And then um, you habituate. Now, you're quite right in saying showers um, will habituate you a bit, but they're not as effective as going in. And the other good, very good idea is start when the water's at its warmest. So that's going to be September time. It takes a long while to warm up. And then you'll get a natural habituation with time. And for the beneficial effects, we think you don't need to stay in for more than a few minutes. But do you think I shouldn't stay in for more? Because this is all about me. Do you think I shouldn't stay in for more than... The, do you think 20 minutes... I mean, I know it gives me a sort of edge over Alistair Campbell, but do you think... 20, staying in for 20 minutes is too long. Yes. I want to use it for exercise, though, Mike. That's the thing. Well, run to and from the pond. Mm, I know, but I'm too cold. <laughs> well, <laughs> and do something else for your exercise. So how long would you recommend for the, in the, in the, when it gets to its coldest, how long would you say stay in? Oh, yeah, I know more than five to ten minutes. Um, but do remember, right. that, I mean, it's really important for people who are, you know, listening and thinking of taking this up. Um, that, that, that first couple of minutes is also the most dangerous period of immersion. That's when we lose about 60% of those that die on immersion. Um, we lose somebody in the UK about every 20 hours to drowning. We lose a child a week, and 60% of those deaths 
are due to exactly the responses we're talking about. What happens on initial immersion? Let me ask you about after drop, which for those who don't know is that you feel a lot colder about 10 minutes after coming out of the water. My, my estimation is about 10 minutes out after the water. You think the coldest point is when you're in the water or just come out. That isn't the coldest point. The coldest point is a bit later on. So that's why you've got to get your clothes, your kit off and your clothes on as quickly as possible and put on the woolly hat, drink tea, climb inside a bearskin or something. Uh, um, I'm not in favour of killing bears but uh just for the record um, just sharing their skin is what's happening with after drop so it's a physical phenomenon and if you want to do if you get bored in lockdown and you want to do a study get a melon stick a thermometer into the middle of it and seal that thermometer off so no water can get to it if you warm it up to body temperature 37 and you stick it in a cold bath one you swim in say 12 degrees and then you'll you'll have to wait for some time for the temperature to start dropping as the cold front has to move through the melon in the same way as it's moving through your body if when it starts to fall you take it out of the cold and you put it into warm water um, or into a warm air environment, the centre of that melon will keep cooling. Wow. Great explanation, Mike. You are brilliant. I've read so much about bloody afterdrop and I've never understood it. The melon. God, I could talk to Mike for hours. Well, next... Uh, Mike, be careful. He's, he's got your email address now. Yeah, uh, the next he day knows to, how to find you on Zoom. The, OK, Mike, go on. Because we started off by talking about Iron Man, but we didn't really pursue it. What's my next challenge, then, if I want to go the extra mile? There are those sort of Russians who swim in sort of the kind of Arctic doodles. Oh, no, no, there are. um, There's an ice swimming association, which which actually I was talking to last week, which actually do the ice swimming championships. Where do they happen, the ice swimming championships? Vladivostok or somewhere? In very cold places, obviously. But um, I mean, what do you think, Jeff? I may have lost the 2015 general election, but I could become become the ice swimming (laughs) champion of the world. The over 50s ice swimming champion of the world. <laughs> Maybe there's a seniors tour, like, you know, the one that sort of Bjorn Borg is on or something. <laughs> well, look, Mike, I could, as I say, I could talk to you for hours. I think we should have you back. Maybe we should have Mike back in the winter. <clears throat> you want him back every week. Mike Tipton, for now, as we discuss your regular appearance on this podcast, thank you so much. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Whoa, we're in the outro. Is that what you sound like as you lower yourself into the cold water? Yeah, definitely. The water's not so cold, actually. It's 23 degrees at the moment. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's not not too shabby. That's uh, about the same temperature as a cool swimming pool on holiday. Yeah, exactly. Nice. Um, We should say that we would love to hear from you. Definitely. In recent weeks, we've been looking in some depth uh, into the ideas in Ed's book and if you've read the book and you've got thoughts on it we we would love to hear those thoughts please you can email us through the website cheerfulpodcast.com I tell you what we haven't asked people to do for a while either is rate and review the podcast on your podcast yeah, app definitely that always helps us so that'd be great so uh, more people can know about it yeah also rate and review Ed's book wherever you got that from that always helps if you got it from a shop Maybe you could write some little handwritten ones and go and slip them inside the books. Excellent. Um, I'm surprised you haven't done that yet, Ed. Oh, who, how'd you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, do do, uh, do get in touch with us through the website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Shall we thank our guests? We should. Uh, I'd like to thank Graham Smith, Archon Fung and Becky Willis. 
And what about Mike Tipton then? Friend for life? Definitely. You're going to be bugging him? Definitely. I'm going to like demand he comes cold water swimming with me and sort of, you know, coaches me. Looks at He's my going to go ex-directory, isn't keep, he? Keeps keeps you know keeps his hands on my pulse, works out my heart rate, tells me how long I can stay in. <laughs> all of those, all of those things. I mean, I'm not I'm not joking. Honestly, I'm going to have him on speed dial. <laughs> uh, Emma Corsham produces our podcast. We salute Emma for the fine job she does in, uh, in getting this sounding good for you every week. Joel Pierce does all the research and finds the guests. Supported by Joe. Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our ident and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been a pickled gherkin. He's been crowd surfing. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.